0: Um, it's good to be back. And it's been a couple of weeks. I told you I was going to go on vacation. I did a little road traveling, got a chance to see some close friends. Uh, it was refreshing to be with a group of Christians uh, for a weekend. Uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities. And when I feel like I'm talking to Christians about Christ, and I don't feel like I'm deceiving them or making them unawares of my own your Rancho influence I actually feel like I can talk to them and I know that they believe what they believe and I know that they are in spirit on the same page you know do we not all believe in eternal salvation and and, uh, and serving others as uh, Christ instructed us to do of course we are, we're the same so it was a good experience and I didn't uh, Not once did I have the urge to bring up, you know, my book. But that's okay; doesn't matter. There, what did Jesus say? Those who are with us are not against us. Um, you know. So here we are. I've been writing my book. The book has been rewritten five times. I'm frustrated, actually. I almost posted it last night on the website, youranchoradio.net. But I thought, no, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I, what, what, what's what's troubling to me is it's easier for me to explain how I feel about the Orange book and why than it is to write about it. Because when you write about it, what, what happens is you, you tend to get right back into that where you're trying to explain stuff too much. And then what you're trying to say gets lost in trying to explain why you're saying it. So, for example... You know, when you talk about the Urantia book and you get into the details about Part one, two, three, and 4, it can be overwhelming to people who have no knowledge of what you're talking about. And I decided at some point, well, let's just focus on Part 3, because that's the history of Urantia. It's the second largest section of the book, and it has the most pertinent information about where we came from, how we got here, and how we're go- where we're going then you always have to incorporate what you know from paper one and paper two in order to explain for example you know I can say the life carriers initia- initiated life on our world that means nothing to someone who doesn't know what a life carrier is you know when you talk about thought adjusters to people who don't know what a thought adjuster is they don't know what that means So then you have to explain what a thought adjuster is. And you have to use corollary language that people are familiar with. So, for example, when I talk about thought adjusters, I'm basically putting in a disclaimer that says what that means is the Spirit of God. The thought adjuster and the Spirit of God. The only difference is the thought adjuster is the activity of what's actually occurring. The Spirit of God is adjusting your thoughts. Anyway, so uh, and then, of course, with the covid thing and everything that's going on with covid, it's kind of hard to ignore. And this is what I came up with. Uh, Things have changed so much in the last few years because of covid, because of the Trump presidency and all the things. And uh, China certainly has has risen. It's asserting its influence across the globe, which is not a good thing. We talked about that before got to remember that china is 1.4 billion people run by a country that is decidedly atheist okay that's not a good thing for the world if they end up becoming the dominant ideology anyway so the last few years have changed a lot of things and and what it brought me to a realization is is uh up until this time i wouldn't have been able to make this argument but now i can i think Which is why we're going to talk about paper 195 today. Uh, Section 5 of that paper. The Modern Problem. Because the Urantia book is a reaction, I think, to what is transpiring in the world today. I think that's what's happening. I've always pondered, why did the Urantia book show up now, or in 1934? Uh, Opportunity, yeah, perhaps... You had the right characters involved. William Sadler was persistent. Then you had the patient who was able somehow to uh, approve of the process of, of allowing the conversations to be had, which provided direction to the production of the Arantia papers and, and the printing of them and all that. So, uh, And all of this I tried to write in the first couple of paragraphs of the book. And boy, you could just go off into 15 million directions on all of that. It's a lot to to take in. But to my point is that I thought, well, you know, what's happening now really necessitates a revelation. If you think about it, the direction that the world is headed uh, is heavily influenced by two major ideologies, uh, free market capitalism and uh, totalitarianism, or some shade thereof. Call it what you want—socialism, government control, government surveillance, technocracy—which is the ability of governments to control people's movements through technology, and also tabulate their movements—and and and and, uh, and all of that is going on, and it's frightening because it's in the hands of people who have asserted themselves to be lords over the earth, and people are corruptible. Uh, And this is part and parcel why Rome fell. If you look into some of the writings about Rome from the Arantia book and elsewhere, you'll know that it could have been a potentially game changer. Think about uh, how far along we might be today if Rome had not fallen. And it fell because it had no spiritual base. There was nothing cohesive. It just fell by the weight of its own consumption and corruption. And that's what we're seeing today. Is massive corruption. So it's not to be negative. It's just that the Arantia Book, now I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to prevent catastrophe, in my view. I think that they're trying to stave off another potential spiritual dark age. So we'll get into paper 195 in just a minute. It's good to have you here. I urge you to go to the Arantia Book Foundation website, arantia.org. There's some new stuff going on. The president... Uh, has released his 2021 report, I think, his quarterly report. Uh, A lot of good things going on with the Urantia community. UBIS school starts up in January. Uh, You can take a course or two on subject matter that appeals to you. It's a great course. It takes about six weeks. It's a little bit of writing and a whole lot of reading, and you get to know other people's point of view. And I've done it a few times, and it's fantastic. Also, we're going to reach out to our good friend, over at freeschools.org, uh, we're going to write them a check uh, for the end of the year. We've tabulated all of the contributions that you guys have made, and I appreciate it very much, so we'll get in touch with them. I looked up Len's email address, and it was defunct, so I'll have to go to the other people that are in the organization. And If you don't remember, that organization is a, a group of Urantia book readers who just happened to... Uh, get involved with a school in northwest India that teaches young girls literacy how to read so that they will not be locked into this pattern of poverty because they have no skills they're illiterate and when you're illiterate and you're female in India in rural India it means that there's not a lot of opportunity for you other than having more children and so to, to those people, I commend them. Uh, you can't get more service-oriented than that, I don't think. Now, there are other ways, obviously, but boy, just you know, talk about walking a mile in their shoes. Uh, and there's a lot of this going on that we're not told about, and it's unfortunate. It gets drowned out by all the bad news. I think the worst news that's going on, probably, is the economic pressure now. Uh, The people that are already without are going to be without even more. It's uh, bad enough in places that have been hard hit by weather conditions, which is always happening, drought. Then you've got the political discourse, or the political destruction, really, of governments that are so corrupted that they don't take care of their own people. Um, They're still evolving, apparently. So, uh, uh, but writing the book, taking a lot of time, rewriting it. I'm get, I'm making progress. I could put it out now and it would be it would be playing to the crowd. It would be writing to your anchor book readers who already know all that stuff. What I'm trying to do is wake up, shake up the world and say, hey, look, do you realize what we have in our possession? That's where I want to start. I want to start from that point. Where are we in our in uh, rolling out the revelation, you know, I mean, there's a lot of great works being done, and the community is bustling, and the books are being sold, downloads are occurring, people are looking for it. But the growth of this podcast, I, t- I think, represents there aren't too many Urantia Book podcasts out there, and with podcasting being the big thing right now in media, I would think there would be more people. I, we should be at ten thousand right now. And we're at, well, we're, we're at 47,000 downloads, which is good. That means 47,000 times somebody or a group of people took the time to listen to me talking about the 5th Epical Revelation. I'm happy about that. But it should be at 400,000. Shouldn't it? Aren't there 400,000 hungry souls in the world that would just die to know that there's a book that purports to be an epical revelation of truth and then proceeds to prove the merit of what it asserts by releasing information previously unknown, much of it now being confirmed. You know, there's still scientists, I read this just yesterday, there was a report again. They're they're trying to figure out the picture of mankind. You know, when did modern man first appear? And then... You know, what's this group? What are the Denisovans? What are the Neanderthal? How do they all fit in this picture? And the Urantia book gives a specific timeline to exactly what happened. They talk about Andon and Fanta, the first probably Homo erectus. What was the qualifying feature of Andon and Fanta? The quality of their mind. There were a lot of different human tribes, but they were all stupid. They were animal. They were dumb. They don't, they did, like my dog, you know, they just couldn't figure things out. They didn't have this concept of, of trying to think of a better way to do something. They just followed each other. They were just animal. So Andon and Fanta, quality of mind. They they could worship. They could look for an, ask, ask the universe for an answer. That represented an evolutionary jump. And that's where modern man distinguishes himself. It's right there. Any uh, anthropologists want to read that over there at the uh, University of Utah? So that's where we're at. You know, you've got people who just don't want to know that this book exists. So anyway, take a break, come back, and we'll talk about the modern problem and uh, how I think the Arantia book is addressing concerns that only recently have showed yeah. themselves. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm home all the time. We finally, really did it. You maniac. You blew it up. Oh damn you! God, damn you. i got to turn my mic on. Here we go. Welcome back to the Urantia Radio Podcast. So, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an interview with a, an author of a book that I had not heard of called Technocracy. And the author was a guy by the name of Patrick Wood. You might want to look it up. Anyway, he, it was fascinating to me because... Um. Back in the 1800s and the early 1900s, there was a movement afoot in society, something that the Urantia book touches on in paper 195, which we'll get to, and I want to share with you uh, because it's fascinating. And for if you've read the Urantia book and you, you're a longtime reader such as, as I am, I've always wondered why the book appeared when it appeared. To me, timing is all about, you know, there's certain things that are not coincidence. Um, And in the 1880s, particularly the 1700s, when the Age of Enlightenment occurred, it was really a reaction against the overpowerful Christian church. So, in many ways, you can look at governments around the world today, and they're pretty powerful, and they have a lot of influence, and they dictate people's lives. And in much the same way, the great Catholic Church was like this for hundreds of years and people basically just got sick of it. And so when we started to discover the natural sciences and we started to realize that the earth indeed uh, spun around the sun and not vice versa, people started to realize that much of what religion was teaching wasn't true, was based a lot on superstition. And so the Age of Enlightenment was really the mother of secularism. And um, I know that's taught in college, but also it says it very clearly in the Arantia book that secularism is a reaction to uh, the all-powerful Christian church. But I hadn't really given it much thought beyond that simple statement. I mean, it made sense to me. But then I picked up on this word positivism, and then from that word, scientism, and when I started writing this book that I'm writing about the Arantia book, I realized that the profound changes of the last few years have clearly shown me, I think, more of a clue as to why I think the revelators wrote the Arantia book and why the evolution or the epical revelation of the book was delivered into our hands as it was. And I... And I I think I could be wrong but I think what it is is that the revelators and who are the revelators after all the ancients of days commissioned Gabriel went about selecting certain personalities from across a wide spectrum of personalities and each one of those personalities authored each one of the 196 pages of the book well with the exception of the Midwayers, I suppose, in Toto, they they produced the Arantia book. But it was still, eventually, somebody had to write or put into concept what we read. And those come from experienced personalities who know what they're talking about because they've lived what they're talking about. So, for example, if you look at the first five papers of the Arantia book in part one, that was written by... Uh, a divine counselor who states that he sat in the presence of the Father many times and he knows whereof he speaks if you look at the end of paper 1 and the acknowledgement he says that very thing. I I know what I'm talking about. And that's the tone of the entire Urantia narrative every one of those papers was authored by a person who was commissioned to do so that's pretty heavy Um, and so in the other thought that I had, which which is, if you look back at the different epical revelations that have been given to us, Caligastia was the first. When did that happen? It happened upon the parents of the colored races, the most advanced races at that time. Probably the Denisovans, I'm not sure. But the book or the, the first revelation, which was a gift, which was the Caligastia and the 100, who later would become known in the Bible as the Nodites, east of the land of Nod and all that. That was one revelation, and it was more of a revelation for the total population, for the group. Okay, so then the second revelation came in the form of what? Adam and Eve. Now, you could argue that that was a revelation also for, intended for the biological up, uh, uplift of the entire human race. But it was also very personal. It was a personal revelation. Adam was more like, I would, I would say, more like Christ, in that he wanted to tr- to teach about the faith of God and the Most Highs, and, 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 and by example, Adam and Eve were to lead the spiritual uplift. Melchizedek is the third in this line of events, this chain of events, and he came to set up a school uh, of missionaries who would go out and teach as a group effort to uplift the group religious experience. So it seems like all of the revelations thus far have either been for the group or for the individual. Christ obviously came for the individual. Christ's teachings are personal. Uh, he was very one-on-one. It was about the personal relationship that you could have with God. Whereas the Urantia book, is, or if, if, if it is in fact a revelation akin to these previous four revelations, then is it for the upliftment of the group or the individual? I would argue it's for both, with an emphasis on the group to bring us all up to speed at approximately the same time, to spiritually uplift us. It's certainly not going to biologically uplift us. A book can't do that. But it most certainly can introduce concepts into the mainstream that over a period of time, will take root and start to produce real fruit in the lives of human beings who now understand that there's a greater revelation to be had. But why now? What was it a reaction to? What event or what series of events may have come about during the later part of the 1800s and the early part of the 1900s that made the revelators decide, we've got to do something here. We need to step in. Now, when Melchizedek, If you remember in the writings of the Melchizedek, the twelve receivers started to notice that the spirit of truth, or or even of of truth itself, was starting to vanish from the minds of of the human race. We were going backward. Our religion wasn't advancing. And we know from the experience of the Neanderthals that they didn't advance over the course of a half a million years. So, In my view, the Urantia revelators and and Gabriel and those who were behind the scenes trying to evaluate how we were progressing as a human species, they probably started to notice that when we let go of the church in the 1700s, 18th century, what was there to replace it? Positivism, or scientism or natural law. This is where, remember, this is the age of, you know, all the great, Astronomers, Galileo, the naturalist Darwin. These emerging sciences were, were starting to have a great influence on humanity. It was dissolving the, uh, the um, superstitions of all the religions. But positivism, as good as it is or as much as it emphasizes science, also has some inherent danger. So let me read to you what Wikipedia says about positivism. Positivism asserts that all—and this is important because when I read to you this next paper from paper 195, section 6, you can almost see that section 6 is addressing positivism head-on. Listen to this. uh, Positivism asserts that all authentic knowledge allows verification and that all authentic knowledge assumes that the only valid knowledge is scientific. William uh, Dith- Dithy, in contrast, who was uh, around circa 1833, fought strenuously against the assumption that only, uh, that only explanations derived from science are valid. At the uh, turn of the 20th century, the first wave of German sociologists, including Max Weber, George Semmel, they rejected positivism. Uh, but it's important to note that the positivists have a simple solution— the world must be divided into that which we can clearly see and the rest doesn't exist. It doesn't have an there is no more pointless philosophy. That's the that's the assertion of scientism today. That there is no such thing as religion. There is no such thing as feelings and assumptions met and all that other stuff, right? Everything has to either be proven by science or it doesn't exist. And that's what's happening now in the world today. Everything is being run by scientists. Nothing wrong with science. The Urantia book integrates science with philosophy and religion in a holistic manner. We know that if you read it. But let me read to you, taking into account what I just told you about scientism, because it's very important. Again, there were a whole slew of people who thought that that the only thing that mattered was what you could prove. And that was a reaction to, get religion away from me. Get, get spirituality away from me. That stuff doesn't do anything. We believe in science. That's, that's the attitude of the world today. And so it reads in paper uh, 195, section 6 on materialism, It says, Scientists have unintentionally precipitated mankind into a materialistic panic. They have started an unthinking run on the moral bank of the ages. But this bank of human experience has vast spiritual resources. It can stand the demands being made upon it. Only unthinking men become panicky about the spiritual assets of the human race. When the materialistic secular panic is over, the religion of Jesus will not be found bankrupt. The spiritual bank of the kingdom of heaven will be paying out faith, hope, and moral security to all who draw upon it in his name. Now, we have to remember this book came out in 1934, which was right after the Great Depression. So it's interesting that in this first thing that they write, they're actually making reference to the fact that at that time, if you remember or if you recall from your history, that when the Great Depression occurred, everybody made a run on the bank. And there just wasn't enough money. And so that caused everything to fall. And, and it's interesting that they use that reference here. They have started an unthinking run on the moral bank of the ages. So for people who, like me, who worry about if we're going to become too materialistic and can the faith of Jesus or even the Arantia book have anything to offer... What this is basically saying is, don't be fooled. Human beings are very spiritual. And just because science is asserting itself as the end all to all of our questions, you know, only unthinking men become panicky about the spiritual assets of the human race. And when the materialistic secular panic is over, the religion of Jesus will not be found bankrupt. The spiritual bank of the kingdom of heaven will be paying out faith, hope, and and moral security to all draw upon it in his name. So that's an important concept because what it means is that despite the fact that things don't look too good right now, there's a lot of spiritual assets that have been untouched. They're in the vault. And it's a very powerful thing and and what Jesus taught will pay out in dividends in the ages to come. And I would draw upon the example, which I know I've mentioned before, that in the 1990s in China, which had by all accounts now 70 years. China was an atheist country for 70 years. That's two generations. And yet in the space of one year or one decade, 100 million people, which represents I think about one-tenth of their population, a little less, got religious through Falun Dafa or Falun Gong. So even in a atheistic society where it's practically against the law to be religious still people found religion. And, and that gave me some comfort when I thought about that. When I hear studies right now, they, are, they always seem to have a study that says that people are becoming less religious. And I suppose that might be a message that, you know, maybe religion doesn't matter. But it does matter. That's what this section is telling us. This section is telling us, this section comes the closest to not only being pro- prophetic, because it's predicting the next few stages of mankind if we don't get our act together. And if we become just a society of scientists who want to section out the world and micromanage the hell out of you know, humanity, well, they're going to find out that they can't do that. You can't do it with science alone. So here's where I think it starts to tell you about, you know, it's an answer to that breakaway faction that is trying to establish scientism and positivism in society. It says from paper 195, section 6, paragraph 3, the pursuit of mere knowledge without the attendant interpretation of wisdom and the spiritual insight of religious experience eventually leads to pessimism and human despair. A little knowledge is truly disconcerting. At the time of this writing, the worst of the materialistic age is over, So this is 1934, and you've had a whole slew, a hundred years now, of scientists, natural law experts, all kinds of psychiatrists, who've all decided that religion doesn't matter anymore. The true science is the only thing that is valid. And so their answer to that, the, the worst of that age is over. The day of better understanding is already beginning to dawn. The higher minds of the scientific world are no longer wholly materialistic in their philosophy. But the rank and file of people still lean in that direction as a result of the former teachings. What's interesting is from 1935 to today, it seems that the rank and file are still embracing scientism as the only valid science or philosophy or reality. They seem to think it's over. It seems to me it's gotten worse. But they write. But this age of physical realism is, is only a passing episode in man's life on earth. Modern science has left true religion, the teachings of Jesus, as translated, in the lives of his believers untouched. All science has done is destroy the childlike illusions, of the misinterpretations of life, and there's truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. In fact, in I, I believe it was paper ninety eight point seven. It could be 97.8, 97.8, where it talks about the difference between profane and sacred history. Mankind tends to make his history sacred, and, and in, in the church today, there's a lot of emphasis on the sacredness of, of antiquity, and that's why the Bible has the power that it has, because it's rooted in antiquity, and it gives it its authority but it, very, but it makes it very clear you can have a religion without all the sacredness. The sacredness is our attachment to it. Because people like mystery. People like miracles. It, it dazzles us. We love the miracles. But in today's world, science is telling us there are no miracles. There was no... I've had conversations with people, former Catholics... You know, they shun things like the virgin birth, the walking on the water, you know, the miracles that we read about, we grew up listening to about in the Bible. And so let me ask you, don't you think that that's a valid point? The Urantia book writers are very basically saying, you know, you, your religion eventually is going to be religious and spiritual because it makes you a better person and you're serving God, not because Jesus walked on the water or because the Jews were the chosen people, or because, you know, the sacred scriptures, the sacred scrolls, and, you know, all of that. The people that, that that's what religion, That that's what the materialism is a reaction to. They don't want that anymore. And so it makes it very easy for scientists to attack religion on that level. You know, all you believe in is, you know, you know, they make fun of people who, who pray for good health. Well, what prayer? Prayer doesn't do anything. Well, that's not correct, but it's hard from a religious point of view to prove it if all you believe in is science. So let me continue to read from paper 195. Science is a quantitative experience. Religion, a qualitative experience. As regard man's life on earth, science deals with phenomena. Religion with origins, values, and goals. To assign causes as an explanation of physical phenomena is to confess ignorance of ultimates. Now, when I read that, I think of the Big Bang, right? Because the Big Bang just basically says all of the universe came about for an uncaused reason, for an uncaused cause. And then the scientists will wipe their hands and say, finished, we know how life began. But what they're saying is, what you're really doing is confessing your ignorance because you you have no idea why things happen. the way You're ignoring the first great cause, the universal father of paradise. And then it goes on, it says, violent swing from an age to miracles to an age of machines has proved altogether upsetting to man. The cleverness and dexterity of the false philosophies of mechanism, mechanism, belie their very mechanistic contentions. Mechanism is another word for positivism, that things just naturally occurred. The gravity is just inherent in the universe. Lucifer felt that way. That was Lucifer's big mistake, was that he thought that everything, eh, it's just inherent. It would have happened whether, you know, that doesn't necessarily prove that there's a deity. But that's the fatalistic agility of the mind of a materialist, see? Because it reads, the fatalistic agility of the mind of a materialist forever disproves his assertion that the universe is a blind and purposeless energy phenomena. The mechanistic naturalism of some supposedly educated men and the thoughtless secularism of the man in the street are both exclusively concerned with things. They are barren of real values and sanctions and satisfactions of a spiritual nature. These people are also devoid of faith, hope, and eternal assurances, one of the great troubles with modern life is that man thinks he's too busy to find time for spiritual meditation and religious devotion. Here's where it gets juicy. Materialism reduces man to a soulless automation, automaton and constitutes him merely as an arithmetical symbol finding a helpless place in a mathematical formula of an unromantic and mechanistic universe. But whence comes all this vast universe of mathematics, without a master mathematician? Science may expatiate on the conservation of matter, but religion validates the conservation of men's souls. It concerns their experience with spiritual reality and eternal values. It says a materialistic sociolog- sociologist of today's survey of today a- surveys a community, makes a report and leaves the people as he found them. 1900 years ago, an unlearned Galilean surveyed Jesus giving his life as a spiritual contribution to man's inner experience, and then went out and turned the whole Roman Empire upside down. Might have been referring to Paul. And this is interesting because then it takes a little turn. Up to this point of this, this section, it's talking about the scientist, the materialist, now they turn their attention to the religious leaders. And remember, this section is called The Modern Problem. But religious leaders are making a great mistake when they try to call modern man to spiritual battle with the trumpet blasts of the Middle Ages. I love that, that quote. The trumpet blasts of the Middle Ages. Religion must provide itself with new and up-to-date slogans. Neither democracy nor any other political panacea will take the place of spiritual progress. False religions may represent the the invasion of reality or evasion of reality, but Jesus in his gospel introduced mortal man to the very entrance upon eternal reality of spiritual progression. And how did he do that? By giving dignity to every human being by saying, not only do you have a right to be here, but you are a child of the creator of this place and that you have a purpose. No other religion had said that before up till Jesus walked the earth. And even today that message has been twisted and contorted into a thousand different precepts. But the essence of the gospel is that you have spirit in you and it's that spirit that makes you immortal. It's not your mind, it's not your skin, it's not your bones. It's, it's that spirit essence that science can't prove is there, but you know it's there. Your mind tells you it's there. How can you disprove that? Because it's not quantifiable. That's what it says earlier, math. Science is about quantity. Religion is about quality. And they write, to, the, to say that mind emerged from matter explains nothing. If the universe were merely a mechanism and mind were unapart from matter, we would never have two differing interpretations of any observed phenomena. The concepts of truth, beauty, and goodness are not inherent in either physics or chemistry. A machine cannot know, much less know truth, hunger for righteousness, and cherish goodness. Science may be physical, but the mind of the truth-discerning scientist is at once supermaterial. Matter knows not truth, neither can it love mercy nor delight in spiritual realities. Moral convictions based on spiritual enlightenment and rooted in human experience are just as real and certain as mathematical deductions based on physical observations, but on another and higher level. If men were only machines, they would react more or less uniformly to a material universe. Individuality, much less personality, would be non-existence. The fact of the absolute mechanism of paradise at the center of the universe of universes in the presence of the unqualified volition of the second source and center makes forever certain that determiners are not the exclusive law of the cosmos. The absolute fact of paradise, which is the home of natural energy or energy itself, which is controlled by the second source and center, which is God the sun, makes forever... Cer- There's a great line in here. All right. The finite universe of matter would eventually become uniform and deterministic, but for the combined presence of mind and spirit. The influence of the cosmic mind constantly injects spontaneity into even the material worlds. That's why we have sp- spontaneity, diversity. Not all the flowers look the same, not every human being is different, and yet we're the same, right? We're different in our personality. That makes us different. If, if we were just machines that were produced by a mechanistic universe, we would all be the same. Freedom or initiative in any realm of existence is directly proportional to the degree of spiritual influence and cosmic mind control. That is, they say, in human experience, the degree of the actuality of doing the Father's will. And so when you start out with to find God, that's proof that God has already found you. Here perhaps is the, uh, the best statement. The sincere proof or pursuit of goodness, beauty, and truth leads to God. And every scientific discovery demonstrates the existence of both freedom and uniformity in the universe. The discoverer was free to make the discovery. The thing discovered is real and apparently uniform. Or else it could not have become known as a thing. But the discoverer was free to make the discovery. Isn't that, isn't that just a fascinating philosophical concept? And it's an argument, a powerful argument against scientism and positivism. We are not merely machines that could be controlled by data, and the universe is not random causation. There's a plan in place. It's a spiritual plan. And it's not obvious to people who are only looking at data and numbers and what they can prove in a, you know, in a lab. And that's where we're at because in our world today, many people have succumbed to scientific naturalism. Natural law is the only thing that exists. And they discard their religious heritage. And in doing so, they throw away the wisdom that comes from that same religious heritage. And I think that's why that the Urantia book revelators wanted so much for this book to become a reality in our world. It It's the antidote. It's the new slogan that they refer to. Christianity needs to come up with something that's commensurate with the science that dominates our ideology in the world today. So religion has to become powerful. And what better, better way to do that than to study the life of perhaps the greatest human being on the planet. And they provided that in the form of 700 pages for all to see. And what do they say? What do they say at the very beginning of this? That eventually the truth of Jesus' teachings will pay huge dividends. We will never run out of inspiration from his life. And I think that's an appropriate message as we head into the holidays. I appreciate you joining me. Also, I think I'm going to go back in the archives and find the old Paula Thompson interview. Paula is retiring from uh, the fellowship and her work with the Arantia Foundation. I have a feeling she's not going to retire too much. But uh, she did an interview with me about, I don't know, three four years ago. And it was purely delightful. So I'm going to dig that up and probably post that on the next, next podcast just in time for Christmas. And in the meantime, thank you for your wonderful support through the year. Uh, Let's not be afraid to share this podcast with others. I understand that a lot of people are searching for spiritual food in their lives and they're hungry. And that's what we're trying to do here, sharing the fifth epical revelation. I'm Jim Watkins. Until next time, God bless. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday with those you love. Until next time, see you then.